The Guardian. Another sausage cooked, another infant kissed. Costings are imminent, or so the campaign legend goes. We've reached the halfway point in this election campaign, but are we really man enough to get to the end? Welcome to Australian Politics Weekly. Fantastic to have your company. I'm Catherine Murphy, Deputy Political Editor of Guardian Australia. Later in this podcast, political commentator and policy analyst Grog Scammett, a.k.a. Greg Jericho, will be in the studio with us. But before that, I'd like to welcome back a lady who feels very much like my partner in caper for this election campaign, Guardian Australia's political editor, Lenore Taylor. G'day, Lenore. Are we still alive? Consider this the proof of life question. Not only am I alive, Catherine, but I believe woman enough to make it all the way to polling day. Woman! <laughs> OK, a week's a long time in an election campaign. Let's start our conversation today with Kevin Rudd and Labor. I think Labor's struggling. The polls are stuck either where they were at the beginning of the campaign, which had Labor definitely behind, or worse, going backwards for Labor. Some of the marginal seat polling has been truly dire for Labor. And in terms of the campaign, it's a strangely static campaign. There's not much money to spend. There's not many policies to announce. Uh, Both sides are trying to run it as a sort of presidential campaign, but they're neither of them very presidential. And so we seem to be sort of going round and round the same issues. Kevin Rudd talks about health or he talks about education. He calls for the coalition's costings. Tony Abbott says he's not going to give his costings till he's good and ready. And then another day starts. That sort of static nature of the campaign favours Tony Abbott because he started out ahead and I think he's drawing further ahead as we go along. Mm, And he's sort of drawing into that defensive posture. Tuesday we saw Rudd getting fired up at a local school in Brisbane. Personally, I had a weird flashback to the Houston rallies in 1993, perhaps not where Kevin would want to be, but perhaps it works. What do you reckon? Do these images fire up the voters, fire up the base, get people excited? The point of those sort of exercises is to look like there's energy in your campaign. And that's exactly why Hewson did them, but they can backfire badly. I can remember one Hewson rally where his car nearly ran over a a man dressed up as a giant lemon with a sign that said, GST gives me the pip. And another one where someone chucked an egg at him, that was in Sydney, I think, where he actually caught it. So it turned out okay, but it could have gone horribly wrong. So those kind of, you know, cheering crowds moments can really backfire on you. And as for the positive nature of them giving the campaign, energy, maybe a bit, but they can also look a little bit desperate. A little bit confected, possibly. So Kevin's faltering, yes, uh, and Abbott, though, seemingly seems to grow more confident as the election D-Day gets closer. Abbott's sex appeal remarks about Fiona Scott. Let's have a listen to Tony Abbott's latest remarks. To get more jobs here locally to actually improve our economy. And at the risk of exciting anyone, can I just say... Obviously, from that answer, she ain't just a pretty face, okay? (laughs) And at the risk of exciting anyone, let's listen to Fiona reiterating her line. There's no need to apologise for what is an absolute charming compliment between friends. So, an absolute charming compliment between friends. Last week we thought this was a bit of a gaffe, Lenore, but uh, as it seems to be repeated over the course of the week, more strategy, you think? Mm -hmm. Once might have been a, a mistake, but twice is clearly deliberate. There was a lot of debate after the original sex appeal remark among 
people using Twitter and, you know, the people that the, what the coalition would probably call the elites. It was viewed with disapproval, but on talkback radio and in other forum like that, it was viewed approvingly. And there was a kind of backlash, you know, what are those people saying that a bloke can't pay a good-looking Sheila a compliment? <laughs> a of course, man. if I could just intersperse here for a moment, that's not what people were saying. People were saying that if a boss is listing the characteristics of someone that makes them a good candidate and potentially a good politician, then her attractiveness should potentially not be one because the flip side of that would obviously be that if she wasn't attractive, she would be a worse politician. Anyway, that's just my view. But clearly it's not the view of the voters in Lindsay because our Guardian Lonigan poll showed that they were going to uh, vote for Ms Scott in overwhelming numbers. In fact, she had 60% of the primary vote. So... What's working is pretty obvious in terms of the Abbott campaign at the present time. Let's think about risks for the moment. This whole costings debate, I don't think uh, it's adhered as much as Labor wanted it to, but Abbott not producing costings, is this all upside or are there risks? No, I think there are very definitely risks. It's a sign of the Coalition's confidence that they haven't felt any need so far to succumb to this pressure and produce any detailed costings of anything that they've done during the campaign. They're particularly coming under pressure on their paid parental leave scheme uh, because it's such such a large uh, scheme, such a big amount of money, and the costings are so complicated and things are starting to come out about how they would pay for that, which clearly they would prefer it to keep the lid on until later in the campaign. So I think there is a downside and a potential risk, but, you know, they're weathering it so far. Mm. And in that costing space, we had a debate between the two Treasury uh, spokespeople on uh, Q&A on Monday night. Here's a bit of that. If you don't run a surplus when you have the highest terms of trade in around 100 years, when do you run a surplus? When well, do you? I, I tell you what. When will you get to surplus? Well, we will get to surplus a hell of a lot of time well, before you, mate. I mean, well, I tell, tell you when, Joe. And, and you know why? Give us a year, Joe. You know why? Well, you know what, Chris? I'm not going to sit here and lie to the Australian people about the numbers. Uh, we laid out a plan of surplus, and yes, the world economy is volatile and things change, but that doesn't mean you don't lay out a plan, Joe. You're not even laying out a plan for surplus. If you can't be honest with the Australian people, you don't deserve to be the government. Okay. Oh, well, now I, I, I want to agree with you. If you can't well, be honest with the Australian figures. people, we'll you can't be trusted because we'll you can't figures, be honest. I actually thought both Joe Hockey and Chris Bowen acquitted themselves pretty well in that debate. They both had difficult moments. Chris Bowen had a difficult moment when he clearly couldn't remember how much Gonski education reforms cost in the out years and hockey had several difficult moments because he couldn't answer those questions because the coalition has a totally deliberate strategy of not committing to any budget bottom line or any number around a future deficit or a future surplus for the duration of the campaign. So he had to be evasive on those questions and that showed. So there was difficulties for both of them, but I thought they both did pretty well. And debates while we're in that frame, uh, looking forward to Wednesday evening, the second campaign debate between the leaders of this election. Town hall style, we gather sort of roving microphones. I'm not sure that we're certain about the format yet, but that's the general vibe. Do you think that'll deliver a better experience for the voter and the viewer this time than the first one? 
it'll probably be more entertaining to watch whether it will actually elicit any more information is an entire different question because it's harder to ask follow-up questions in that kind of format and more difficult for leaders to question one another or put each other on the spot. So in terms of actually finding something out, probably no more useful, but as a viewing experience, maybe better. Of course, the commercial networks and Kevin Rudd were sort of dragged to this format. That's not what they wanted. Sky put it on, said at Tony Abbott's coming and come if you want to. And eventually they, most of them seem to have come to the Brisbane Broncos on Wednesday night. Um, and we'll see how it goes. And in terms of that sort of more people intensive environment, who do you think will manage that better? They'll both do pretty well. I mean, they're both pretty good on the stump. Probably Tony Abbott is better at getting his message across, but he's also more scripted. Kevin Rudd's in his hometown and has the hometown advantage. So, you know, I I wouldn't really predict that one of them was starting as the, you know, firm favourite in the debate stakes. Guess we'll see. The Guardian. Round and Round, a new song from Canberra band Super Best Friends. The film clip that went viral featuring a whole lot of well-known pollies. Kevin Rudd, Tony Abbott, I think he was spinning a bike wheel, Clive Palmer, Nick Xenophon with his bass guitar, maybe it was, I don't know, Fender, who knows. Everyone was in there. Personally, I hate punk. Are you a punk man, Greg? I don't mind a little bit of punk, yeah. No, Clash and so forth. Mm. Although this is a bit more rapperish, isn't it? It's sort of a mix of genres. I think it was Canberra punk. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is Australian Politics Weekly for Guardian Australia, and I'm Catherine Murphy. Lenore's still with us. Joining me now is a man who started out blogging politics under a pseudonym, Grog Scammett, while he was still a public servant. Greg is a man of many masters and many digital forms. But fortunately, he's part of our pack at Guardian Australia with his very popular column, Grogonomics. Greg, thanks for coming on Australian Politics Weekly. Pleasure, Catherine. Thank you. Bracing myself for your answer here, Greg. Um, What's your take on the election coverage so far? I was looking back to 2010 and the things I was criticising back then, and mostly I was looking at uh, what the press pack was doing out on um, out on the stump and following around the leaders. And it was, especially in the first couple of weeks, it was utterly woeful. Whereas, to be honest, in the in the past couple of weeks, I've actually been quite impressed with the questions that have been asked in, in the main of the leaders. It certainly has been good with things like the paid parental leave scheme because basically that's a rehash policy in, in a sense. So they So the journalists there aren't taken by surprise. And there also haven't been too many actual policies that are, are really sort of out of left field or just, you know, had no idea what type of questions to ask. So I think actually they've been, the, the journalists out there crammed on the bus and being sent around like, you know, packed um, chickens really, they've been doing okay. I, but then when you actually get to the coverage and what's actually ending up on, say, the front pages of the newspapers, well, I think that's pretty woeful. Uh, woeful Why? Well, I mean, obviously, with the the news corp newspapers, I've clearly taken a stance, and uh, they're not deviating from it one bit. And so you get front pages like you know the Courier Mail today was the main news was the fact that Peter Beattie wasn't campaigning in his in his seat, or you have you know 
Anthony Albanese having a beer and, you know, it, it's the, the focus on the front pages, which is really the main game when it comes to how's the election been coverage, has, has just always had that slant. While there might be some good coverage on page 9 and 10, it's really tough to get past... Uh, the Hogan's Heroes. Yeah, yeah. But that's probably more the fault of the editors rather than the the journalists. People are certainly working very hard mm. in this environment, which sort of leads me to my next question. Before we came together to do the podcast, I asked some people on Twitter to send me some questions uh, uh, with the hashtag Ask Grogs, which was a bit of a laugh. Uh, but we actually got some quite good questions, a couple of which I'll throw at you. Now, obviously, 2010 was kind of your beginning as a, a, a political commentator, really, in terms of, of really kind of entering the, the main uh, major media debate. Now we roll forward, um, you're producing three columns a week and you're everywhere. I wonder if your uh, the your workload gives you any sort of empathy with the humble working journalist. Yes, no, actually, back in 2010, I was writing my blog every day and uh, I've actually stopped doing that um, you're writing. You are writing yeah. a blog at, in the evenings. Aren't I you? am now, uh, but I had stopped doing that when I started writing my three posts. You know, two for the Guardian, one for ABC's Drum. Um, I stopped writing that, and actually felt like my con- uh, output actually went down. So it was a bit easier now that I've actually got back to redoing the the blog post every night, as well as doing the three articles. It, it has got a bit insane. Uh, <laughs> Welcome to our exactly. world. Um, <laughs> Hello. The I mean, the, the the big difference between now and 2010 is I don't have a day job, which I had to sort of go and do and then, you know, think about what am I going to write on my blog while I was driving home. Now I can sort of sit at home and I'm Well, you can devote sort of yourself the whole to the time. task. Yeah. And you, yeah. it's, that, it's that dynamic you're talking about, about sitting back or stepping forward mm, in terms yeah. of what sort of stuff you're producing. Just quickly before we get on to the economic policy debate, which I'm keen to engage you on with this podcast, I'm keen to point readers in, in the direction of interesting material that's happening uh, out there in on the interwebs. Um, who do you like reading in terms of campaign coverage that perhaps people mightn't uh, routinely go and consume? There's the Oz Votes 2013 site. Club Tropos is an old, very mm. long-standing, good political blog which has some great economic stuff on it. Gruen People like others, yeah, Nick Gruen yeah, writes terrific. it. Another sort of more financy type blog that I often read called Macro Business, mm-hmm. which uh, has a lot of good stuff on uh, housing prices and interest rates, which is a bit sort of out of the the political day-to-day sort of stuff, of stepping back and reading the stuff that's a bit more broader focused. Well, and also just acknowledging that the world still turns outside Mm, the election campaign. Now, economic policy debate, why is it so bad? I think it's bad because the difficult things with it are off in the future. And there's sort of two aspects there. There's the aspect where we're trapped into this I think quite rightly, this argument of where's your costings and how you're going to pay for things, and and that certainly is needed. But when we're looking at, if you're looking at something like structural deficits and things like that, you're actually looking more further afield than the four-year budget estimates, projections. So you're actually talking about things that are in six, seven years. And it's quite difficult to actually give specific numbers for those things because there aren't any budget numbers for those things. Mm. And Mm. so if a politician does 
attempt to sort of talk in that way, it gets reported of, oh, well, you're talking about the never-never. Well, you know. you're outside the budget yeah, estimates. And the credibility problem of, of pitching for the future, which is that you're outside the budget estimates, yeah. so there's an inherent a challenge there for politics and policy makers. Uh, now, the structural deficit is is the big elephant in the room for the whole campaign, mm. isn't it, essentially? Explain what, what the structural deficit is and why does this conversation brackets that we're not having matter? Well, the structural deficit is essentially... It's a, a theoretical thing, really. It's it's not the real budget deficit of did the government spend more or spend less. It's it's essentially trying Treasury and the parliamentary budget offices and other sort of economic think tanks have tried to work out what would the budget situation be if we were kind of at long term trends. So if the terms of trade weren't as high as they are now, if they were back perhaps where they were in the nineties, if growth is at a certain rate what would the budget position be? And the general consensus seems to be that we would be in a much deeper deficit than we are now, obviously, because the terms of trade wouldn't be as good, but that also if we keep going on certain projections of how much we're going to spend and how much we're going to raise through tax, then it's, we're looking at sort of 2020, 2022 before the budget will actually be repaired into a structural balance. And it's it's at its simplest, it's that we're spending too much, not taxing enough, right? Essentially, yeah. Why does economic policy get you excited? Why is it your <laughs> thing? Um, it just always has. I mean, I was I was excited as a kid in it, but uh, so I'm just one of those weird people who who loved economics in year ten. To me, I I find it interesting to write about because there is just so much stuff out there you know and and that's what I my whole sort of uh, MO in my whole sort of grogonomics blog and everything is to try and capture all the data that is just floating around there that is kind of meaningless to people you know and I, like I, I wrote a, a post a, a week or so ago about um, cement production and it's like what the heck does cement production have to do with whether the economy's good or bad or whether, you know, the budget's going to be able to get back into deficit or surplus. And so it's a case of working through and explaining all these sort of little parts of the economy that all sort of have to try and mesh together. So I think it's it's interesting because it, in the end it does affect you. And so I like sort of looking at how all those things sort of flow together. Well, it's how little things explain bigger things. Absolutely. You're listening to Australian Politics Weekly and it's time once again for, drumroll please, Gaff Watch. Although uh, I'd say up front uh, with my guests that one man's gaff is another man's, well, you know what I mean. So, thoughts this week, Lenore? Well, there's been the actual gaffes, the most notable, probably the Liberal candidate in the New South Wales seat of Charlton, who turns out hosted a website which was supposed to be about some kind of small car. I think it was a Mini Cooper. That's it. But in fact, turned out to be a lot of a lot of derogatory comments about women. He's now no longer the Liberal candidate for I think Charlton. He is the former, yes. Mm-hmm. So that's an actual gaff. But there are also things that are quite deliberate. But I just wish they'd stop both. Leaders seem to be asking the other to man up or prove that they're a man or, you know, show me your manhood. No, they didn't say the last one. But <laughs> Let's hope they didn't say no, the last one. No, that was on one. the Mini Cooper website. <laughs> I just wish 
they'd stop being so manly man-uppy about the whole campaign and just stick to, you know, the script. No, it's a complete gross-out, but I think how you feel about that uh, is is very gender-based, based on our limited uh, social research this week. Well, I did tweet it and I got a huge response, some of it from men, but you're, tr- you're right, mostly from I women. I think the ladies don't like it, basically. Greg, thoughts? I don't like it either. It there we go. me. <laughs> Why we love you. Yes. Um, <laughs> my my gaff is, is again not really a gaff, but um, earlier this week, um, the Liberal candidate Tom Zorich, Liberal candidate in Wakefield, was having a debate on Sky News, and Peter Van Onselen asked him a fairly straightforward one of how does the direct action work, and he had to admit that well, I'm not really. I'm just a candidate. I'm not across those details. Details. And... details. The, the most extraordinary thing about that was not that he was not across the detail, but that he didn't seem to think that it mattered. Well, it's sort of it was, was always this case of, well, I explained to you earlier that I'm not across these details, so <laughs> I'm, why are you... I'm a businessman. No, I was sort of a bit torn myself. In, in a way, I sort of admired the honesty of it, right? Rather than just filling with the talking point or the sub-talking point or whatever else, you just say, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, we don't often hear that. So I was sort of chops for the honesty, but it was breathtaking, wasn't it? It was. and um, direct action, no idea. I mean, it has become a bit of the, you know, once uh, the, the James Diaz commented, it has now become the sort of what are the five points and what are the six, seven <laughs> pillars. And so it, it has become a fairly nice sort of bit of a shooting gallery for journalists. Uh, well, they... well I, maybe for next week we don't do uh, gaff watch, but we do pillar watch. Pillar watch, certainly. You've been listening to Australian Politics Weekly from Guardian Australia. Many thanks to Greg Jericho. You can follow his blog at grogsgamut.blogspot.com. Also, Lenore Taylor, political editor for Guardian Australia. If you're a Twitter person, you can follow her at Lenore Taylor. The producer of this podcast is the lovely Mike Williams. And I'm the lovely Catherine Murphy. If you're a Twitter person, you can follow me there at Murfaroo. For the latest on the election campaign, including my politics live blog, make sure you stop by Guardian Australia. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next week. The Guardian.